The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, approached Jesus and they put this question to him. Master, we have it from Moses in writing that if a man's married brother dies childless, the man must marry the widow to raise up children for his brother. Well then, there were seven brothers. The first, having married his wife, died childless. The second then and the third married the widow, and the same with all seven. They died leaving no children. Finally, the woman herself died. Now, at the resurrection, to which of them will she be wife, since she had been married to all of them? Jesus replied, The children of this world take wives and husbands, but those who are judged worthy of a place in the other world and in the resurrection from the dead do not marry, because they can no longer die, for they are the same as the angels, and being children of the resurrection, they are sons of God. And Moses himself implies that the dead rise again in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him all men are in fact alive. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You might remember last Sunday I was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, here's their big difference. The Sadducees do not accept the resurrection. And so, as usual, the question they bring to Jesus is not really an authentic one. It's, it's a kind of ridiculing question. Hey, Jesus, if the resurrection has any merit, how can this scenario play out? It's rubbish. Um, I think if, if we think back to the conversations that we've had with our friends, people of faith, people of non-faith, we've probably had similar scenarios. And I don't say this to demonize the way that questions are posed, but I've had friends of mine ask me, Ashwin, if God is so great, if God can do anything, then can he create a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Silly kind of questions like this that are, that are just riddles that aren't meant to be solved. Um, I think in another version where there, Jesus has asked this kind of question, he says, you neither understand scripture nor the power of God. Like your question itself is nonsense. <laughs> I don't need to answer it. It doesn't, it doesn't require an answer. But it makes me think that the journey of faith demands argument. You might think argument's a horrible thing. We don't want that. No, I'm not saying bickering and being cantankerous and just causing discord for no reason. That's not argument in the strict sense. Argument is, here's all my cards on the table, and let's honestly discuss whether or not this fits. Does it work? And this happened a lot. It happened in the Jewish world. In the Jewish synagogue when they were reading the the scriptures someone would be reading and they wouldn't even touch the word they'd have a pointer to point at the word and they'd read and they were not allowed to stop once they'd started but regardless of that someone would hear something and they'd an argument would erupt and they'd talk and they'd say no that means this and that means that cacophony in the worship place while the reader's reading thank god we don't do that here don't let's not start either um but we can pull it apart now Anyway, argument was, was part and parcel of the Jewish engagement with Scripture because they wanted to get to the bottom of it. What does it mean? 
Is our belief actually tenable? Does it hold water? Or is it nonsense? Can it be pulled apart by silly questions? And if the Jewish world doesn't resonate with us, well then Jesus himself, if we consult the scriptures, argued with many people. Because he's cantankerous, no. But because what he said mattered. It mattered to him and it mattered to his hearers whether or not they agreed. An argument would, would usually erupt. He usually argued with his friends. He didn't go search for arguments, but while he's at dinner with, with his own disciples, an argument breaks out. Um, if we think to the most tense conversations that we've had, it's probably with our loved ones, isn't it? It's not with strangers that we've never met, but it's with the people who are close to us, and therefore, whatever exactly it is that we're talking about, it matters. Like, let's settle this, as tense as it is. Argument is, is important. If I can encourage us in these days that we are in, it's almost like the church has lost a little bit of its spine in the argument. We sort of tap out a little too easy nowadays over certain things. Um, I'm not saying we should argue about everything all the time. That's silly. That, that only sows discord. That's not what the church is about. The whole heart of the church is unity. That's why when we gather here, we call it communion, because we're actually trying to become one. We're trying to be brought into the, the beautiful, seamless harmony of Christ. Our argument is not to disrupt that. But I guess if we take anything seriously, we're going to run up against each other's corners where, where our priorities lie and whether those make sense together. There's a beautiful diversity in the church. If there's one thing Christ doesn't want, it's for all of us to look and sound and speak and think exactly the same. Do you know what enmeshment is? When people are in relationship, but they get lost in each other and they no longer have a personality, they no longer have their own concerns. Jesus doesn't want this in our human relationships. He doesn't want it in our relationship with him. In fact, just like we've argued with our loved ones, in our honest times of prayer, we've probably found ourselves arguing with Jesus himself. Lord, I disagree with you. Lord, if I were you, I wouldn't do it that way. This is a perfectly good prayer because he's Lord and he's going to do it anyway. So it's not like we can, uh, we can win the argument. But, but having that honest, sincere discussion is part of the life of faith and it tests our faith. I want to say I remember one time when I was um, in ministry earlier, before I was a priest, I was at a funeral wake and we were with some of the people who were grieving and we were, we were just having a casual discussion. It wasn't about anything in particular. But this gentleman said, I've decided to send my children through Catholic education, but I haven't forced them to go to church and I haven't baptized them and I haven't this and I haven't that. And, and that's fine. That's where he is. But he said it once and, and you know, we all just carried on. He said it a second time. He said it a third. I think he said it maybe five times. And eventually I said, I forgot his name, but let's call him Jerry. I said, Jerry, what, what do you want me to say to that? Like, do you want me to respond to that? And then he revealed his cards and he says, who am I to say that the, you know, 1.5 billion Muslims in the world are wrong? Who am I to say the million Hindus and all of this, who am I to say they're wrong? That's his reason. It's like this strange question. I said, Jerry, no one's asking you to, to dismiss every single other religion on the planet. That's, that's not what a commitment of faith has to be. Think of, you know, let's say Jerry's married to Susie and Bobby's married to Betty. Well, Jerry's married Susie. He's made a lifelong commitment to her. Is he declaring to the world that Susie is like 
ontologically superior to Betty. There's something defective in Betty. He doesn't have to say that. He's just entered into a commitment. It's a personal commitment. It's about him. Is this Jerry secretly saying, I'm not willing to make that kind of commitment? And if it is, so be it. But, but really, there's more being said than, than is obvious, isn't there? There's something wrong. Something wrong with even our ability to argue and dialogue with ourselves. We've got these kind of phony reasons at the surface. What are our real intentions? What does it mean to be sincere before God, before neighbor, before self? I want to say one last thing. I think one of the natural reasons why we don't like argument, and it's good to not like argument, by the way. Please don't take this as me trying to warmonger here. One of the reasons why we naturally shy away from argument is because where does it result if it goes to its end? Death. Like if an argument was to be un unrestrained, you know, like all pistons blazing, it might end in the destruction of one of the arguers. And, and we don't want that. We don't want to inflict that kind of damage, and we don't want to weather that kind of damage either. But I think that reading from Maccabees puts a second challenge to us. The first is argument is necessary. The second is there may come times, don't get martyred over just any random thing, but there may come times when the argument is really worth metaphorically or literally dying for. I lay my life down here. I'm willing to pay the ultimate price for this thing that I hold ultimately precious. Look again at that reading from Maccabees where they're being tortured horribly and one by one they say, uh, you want to scourge my hands, the Lord gave me these, I offer them back and in hope I pray that the Lord will return them to me in the fullness of time. Beautiful sort of holy defiance and also hope. As Christians, we have this, this certain hope in the Lord because we're not, it's not rolling a dice when it comes to Jesus. We know who our Lord is. We know what he delivers. We know that he's always with us. And we know, and we celebrate it every time we come here, that he has risen from the dead and he promises resurrection to all of us who cling to him, who follow him, who stand with him, who belong to him.